Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian, joined today by, as usual, Megan and Emily. How are you guys doing today? Hey, guys. Great. Great. Okay, I have a question for you guys, and it is entirely unrelated to Les Mis. <laughs> so for listeners... <laughs> so awesome. If you are a listener who like does not enjoy opening patter, you might want to skip the next five minutes, but... <laughs> This has to do with the fact that Ian is kind of like our resident Tolkien enthusiast. So I just thought this would be a fun way to get started today for an unrelated project that I don't really want to explain at great length. (laughs) I have been doing a lot of reading on the actor and Academy Award nominee and winner Nicolas Cage. (laughs) I'm struggling to see the Lord of the Rings connection here. I know. Wait for it. So I was doing some reading and... So in an interview that he did for his recent film, The Unbearable Way of Massive Talent. In Hilarious he, film. Great film. He plays himself, right? And he has talked at length about how it was hard for him to play a character that wasn't him, but still had his name, et cetera, et cetera. And in the film, he like he struggles to balance family life with his career. And he says in this interview, quote, first and foremost, there's no version of Nick Cage in reality that doesn't want to spend time with his children. There's no version of Nick Cage that didn't put family first over career. I turned down Lord of the Rings and I turned down Matrix because I didn't want to go to New Zealand for three years or Australia for three years because I needed to be home with my son. So my question. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, (laughs) stop everything. Whoa. Okay, hold on. Emily, I'm sure you have a plan for this, but we now have to imagine Nicolas Cage as every character one at a time. (laughs) Well, that's that's my question. That was literally my question is who who did they try to get him to be in Lord of the Rings? Ready, go. (laughs) At that, in that time, he would have been, especially given the Matrix detail, he was probably being considered for one of the action leads, like... Like Aragorn or Aragorn or something. <laughs> was this imagine? like 03? Because he would have been in the height of National Treasure, I think. Like that would have been his Disney years. He w- it would have had to have been because I know who they got, who they had before Vigo for Aragorn was a much younger actor. And they realized, oh, we cast him too young and then got Vigo. So they were they were looking young for Aragorn's lead so that it, it wouldn't have been Aragorn but maybe it was Boromir I could see that I could not see that I can't see anyone but seen being <laughs> that is anyway, an earth shattering revelation to run with that <laughs> I would I follow mean, you my so king. the whole scene when, Bo- when Boromir like <laughs> I can just my see king it. I can see it now. Uh, I would follow you my king 
Uh, we got. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Seriously, the scene where he tries to take the ring from Frodo would be a classic Nick Cage freakout. <laughs> classic Nick Cage freakout. Oh, man. oh, that is spectacular stuff, man. That's brilliant. Look, just just because he's the subject of this opening here, and I promise we will talk about the book. But a couple of years back, Emily and I, with one of our our friends, some of our friends found a list on Reddit. This guy had spent hours upon hours upon hours ranking Nicolas Cage's filmography. And the rubric that he used to rank it was how Nicolas Cagey was it? I mean, did he <laughs> did he lose his mind? Did he freak out in, in ways that are completely incongruous with the plot of the film? And there were dozens, dozens of them, because Nick Cage has this long, long filmography full of B-movies. He just likes making movies and he makes terrible, awful movies all the time. <laughs> and so we thought, what better way to spend a long winter than watching a bunch of these B-level Nicolas Cage movies? That was a trippy winter. It is a treat. Allow me to encourage you all, if you ever need an evening full of just laughter and confusion, go find so, a Nicolas Cage movie. To transition into what this podcast is actually about, who, if you had to cast Nicolas Cage this. in Les Mis... Who would you cast him as? Well, with our current <laughs> section, since there's a classic Nick Cage freakout, I mean, Tenardier has a classic Nick Cage freakout in the middle of our scene. <laughs> he does. He loses his mind in this very... I don't know, though. He, I think the thing about Nicolas Cage is that he's not actually a terrible actor. He's, he's actually, a Coppola. Yeah, he's a Coppola. The, the dude is wicked talented. He just doesn't care to... He doesn't care to be all that serious most of the time. But if he were, I could see him playing Javert and kind of killing it. I think he would be a good Javert. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think he could do it. I don't it. think so. I think he's I think he too ridiculous. It. Javert is so straight-laced. Nick Cage always has a little crazy around the eyes. <laughs> but there's not a lot of ridiculous. I mean, maybe we'll meet some more ridiculous characters as we go along. Oh my gosh, no, All I just saw All these characters are serious. He would be Marius, hiding behind the wall with the two pistols, <laughs> unsure of whether to shoot them or drop them. <laughs> <laughs> the two pistols from Face Off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, I feel like this, this opening is evidence of something weird about Nicolas Cage. He's always cropping up where he doesn't belong. <laughs> always. Like, man. Which I guess means he kind of belongs in any conversation. Moving on. A classic Nick Cage mess around. <laughs> we are in book eight, The Noxious Poor today. And we were discussing before we got on the air that there's not a whole lot to talk about in the thematic category. I mean, Hugo decides, okay, I've done enough perambulating around the ideas that I want to talk about. And here we are in plot. And now he's flying through the plot. And this is, this. I mean, Megan, what did you say? It feels like watching a television show. Yeah, it felt like, I don't know, with these great authors, I thought this about Tolstoy as well. They have a pet philosophical project that is the, the meat of their book. And they spend a lot of time going deep into that and proving themselves as philosophers and historians. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then it's like they say, hold my beer. I'm going to show you that I'm really great <laughs> at writing plot also. And they kind of crack their knuckles and show you what they're what they're made of, what makes them a really a, a compelling author. And this felt like one of those scenes where he was like, for those of you who are plot minded, don't worry, I can do that, too. Right. 
I wonder, so in our last discussion, we talked at length about Hugo's idea of evil and ignorance. Do you guys think that that conversation was maybe enlarged or added to in any way in this section? What did he say? Ignorance is the root of evil? Like Pretty much. That's what we, yeah, that's what we said and we were concerned. But do you think that he might be showing a little bit more depth to that? Like that it's not a purely enlightenment idea, but rather there is something of the grotesque in the human heart just naturally? Maybe. I mean, my first thought is that this this section contradicts a little bit his previous statement because one of the things we know about Thenardier is that it isn't that he is ignorant. He's cunning and in his youth, right, he trained to be a priest. I think that's the detail that he drops yeah. back in here. Like he's educated. And so the depravity that we witness in Thenardier's plan to murder Valjean in disguise and. Although he's not educated enough to spell well. No, that's true. That's true. Maybe if he could spell better, he'd be a better dude. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a little ridiculous. Like that that statement is a little. I don't think that's what he means. No, but. it isn't. But it's easy to to get confused about that. I think. Well, and then on the other side of the pond is Eponine, who has been raised in this terrible environment, and yet she sees Marius, and at a certain point in our section, she asks if she can be of service to him in any in any little way she it calls something selfless out of her we can assume it's puppy love but yeah i don't yeah selfless might not be the right word in fact in that moment it seemed to me that hugo was really really intent on making sure that eponine's eponine's offer to marius was because she fancies him but that, to me, I mean, I, that's a cynical way to look at it. I guess that it might be a self-serving kind of entrapment. But I, I don't know. I want to take it a little more positively. I guess that maybe hmm. it is a once again, it's a form of love, calling out. And I don't know, Megan. What do you think? She seems like I don't know a perfect fleshing out of the ideas about poverty that we heard in the last section that ignorance is at the root of it but there's also good in human nature that's inherent and she's i don't know she's a virtue of her society but that goodness is struggling in her he describes her at first says that the most touching thing about her is that she had not come into the world to be ugly the grace of her youth was still struggling against the hideous old age brought on by debauchery and poverty and that's just a description of how she looks but I think that it applies to everything that we see her doing. When she goes to talk about how she's been educated by her father, she's proud of that thing in a in a kind of an innocent way. She's mm-hmm. really glad that she can spell and read and thinks that it's a, a wonderful blessing. But what she's using it for is horrible. And she's mm-hmm. she doesn't know what to use it for if not, you know, helping her father steal from people. So it's I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly, but I think that particularly the scene you guys are talking about where she offers to help Marius is equal parts selfless and selfish because I'm not Mm. sure she knows any other way to be, but there is a a kernel of beauty and um, unsullyedness and youth in her still Mm -hmm. that I think we're supposed to be compassionate about. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and maybe part of that too is, we get another, as if we needed one, another picture of Thenardier and the Thenardiers 
and the way that they have used their daughter. Um, the metaphor he uses is that they're gambling. Tenardier is gambling with fate. And for stakes, he's using his daughters. And so on the one hand, they're pursuing a life of, of utter, utter depravity. On the other hand, they're doing it as pawns. And their own will and their own desires are really not factors at all. And so I think it's supposed to be tragic. I think so, too. The picture that we had of Eponine and what is her sister's name? Something crazy like Azelma or something? Uh, uh, yeah. I yeah. think it, that's it. Yeah. I think oh, okay. it's Azelma. <laughs> I think you nailed Thanks. it. Okay. So Eponine and Azelma, when we first saw them, were beautiful, well-dressed little girls playing on that cart. And the cart has since become an image for cruel society, heartless, debased, the lowest part of, of community. And there's this image now that they're being crushed under the wheel. So they're not beautiful and on top and riding society the way that they were before. Now they are the roses being crushed underneath the wheel. And I think that's the heart of of the tragedy for Eponine. Had she been, you know, Fontaine's daughter instead, she'd be better off. And that seems like a, a crazy flip from the beginning of our story. They're definitely, they seem to be foils for one another, Cosette and Eponine. Definitely. In that same section, I think, Ian, you were talking about where it talks about the gambling in the next paragraph on page 733, talking about Eponine. It says she belonged to the group of people, sad creatures without name, age or sex to whom neither good nor evil was any longer possible. And for whom on leaving childhood, there's nothing more in this world, neither liberty nor virtue nor responsibility. Um and actually, Megan, the image you mentioned comes oh, yeah, right after right that. There. Souls blooming yesterday faded today like those flowers that fall in the street and are spattered by the mud before a wheel crushes them. And the language there reminded me of something that was said of Jean Valjean when he, I think actually when he stole the coin from Petit, Petit Gervais, he, he did something that was no longer possible to his nature mm -hmm. when he did that because he had already been touched by the bishop but there was some kind of animal instinct that caused him to steal the coin and i wonder if we're in a similar situation here that that eponine it's good nor evil is no longer possible for her because there's no um, responsibility she doesn't have any responsibility for what's happened to her or what she's doing she's just a victim but even though that action for Jean Valjean was no longer possible. He still did it. And so I wonder if there, if like this is maybe where the providence comes in, right? Where maybe we get a little more theologically minded conversation about where the good of the soul comes from, not necessarily education, but the, the reaching in of providence to do something impossible, to make something possible that was impossible. And so maybe Eponine for whatever her future holds, I don't know. We don't know but maybe it has nothing to do with her formal education. Megan, you said that she can read and write. So whatever Hugo means by the education that alleviates ignorance that causes good, he can't mean reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? <laughs> well, in not to, not to say that providence is, stands equal to any of these other factors, but he does seem to be painting a picture of humanity at the mercy of forces outside their control. In this section, it's misery, right? He says, um, "Yeah, we get the we get an actual Les Misérables call out." Yeah, two miserable beings who are neither children nor girls nor women, a species of impure yet innocent monsters produced by misery. So it's he's not laying Eponine's debauchery at her feet 
as the product of her poor decision making or or her own evil impulses. Marius in his meditations thinks undoubtedly they seemed very depraved, very corrupt, very vile, very hateful even, but people rarely fall without becoming degraded. Besides, there's a point when the unfortunate and the infamous are associated and confused in a word, a mortal word, Les Miserables, whose fault is that? So, so like, I don't know, it just seems every time the title comes up, that's probably significant. <laughs> He's always talking about fault, too. Les Miserables, whose, whose fault is that, this, this degradation? Is it a human nature issue? Is it a societal problem? Is this just the way that human beings are compared to Providence? What should Providence do about it? That's his whole conversation. I don't know that he's given us answers yet, but he's fleshing out his principles one character at a time. Did anyone else? This is this is a dark. It's a very dark section as we're examining human nature. But did anyone else hear a little fall of rain as they were reading the section <laughs> where she's considering drowning herself? She and her family are living under a under a bridge in Paris, and she thinks of drowning herself, and she says, "No, it's too cold." And she says, "I go all alone when I want to." I was like, I think there's a line <laughs> about that. My own. Yeah, on my own. <laughs> oh, it's not a little fall frame. It's on my own. Yeah. She says, I sleep in the ditches sometimes. You know, at night when I walk the boulevards, the trees <laughs> yes. look like gallows. And I thought, that's darker than the song. <laughs> oh, they didn't say that in the song. Also, she's, I mean, I feel like in the musical, they actually make Eponine. You, know, I always felt bad. Oh, I loved Eponine. Eponine. She's my favorite yeah, character. She's, she she's got some dirty clothes, but she's still usually lovely. And Cosette is has no personality whatsoever in the musical. <laughs> and so you always like all the teenage girls are like, "Oh, Eponine, she's I know. so lost in love." But I think the miniseries gets it a little closer by making. Her, I mean, she's losing her teeth. She's mm-hmm. she's not attractive in any way. I know. Yeah, definitely. the The musical is pro Eponine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's almost like the the twilight love triangle that was not supposed to be there and it's broken. This happens again. <laughs> You're not supposed to root for Eponine, but you do. <laughs> I wonder if, if one of the things going on here is the human being's response to providence. And by providence, I don't mean blessings from above that take care of you, but just the way things are going to go with you and the fact that those decisions are sometimes out of your hands. The way that Valjean, for example, has responded to Providence under the influence of the bishop is far different from how Thenardier has. Mm. Um, And Eponine's response to her situation exhibits some of what I think Hugo calls jealousy, or maybe he doesn't use the word jealousy, but when she does ask Marius, can I do anything for you? First of all, she's very perceptive. She sees him and sees that he is struggling with something and asks what's bothering him and is um, is insightful in that moment. And then she offers himself, offers herself to him as a helper and then immediately understands why he wants help and what mm-hmm. for. And her response is a sort of despairing frustration at the role reversal. Right, I should have been and could have been a girl like the one he wants to yeah. pursue. She was when she was young. Right. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say about that, but but I'm looking always, because Hugo has taken these subjects up so specifically, I'm looking for the sense in which he thinks human participation in their life matters and how it matters. And with Thenardier and Valjean as the ultimate foils for one another, I mean... 
it seems like Valjean's a foil for everybody. He's a foil mm-hmm. for Javert. He's a foil for Thenardier. But everybody, including the good characters in our novel, are at the mercy of Providence. Some of them respond to it in faith, and some of them don't. Actually, to that point, chapter or section 17 of our reading for today, when Marius is peeping into the Thenardier apartment, I think this is while he's waiting with his guns for for the attack. It says, the moon shining through the four panes of the window threw its whiteness into the orange flaming garret, into Marius's poetic mind, a dreamer even in the moment of action. It was like a thought of heaven mingled with the misshapen nightmares of earth. And that reminded me of Jean Valjean standing over the bed of the bishop about to steal his mm. his silver. The moon shines down on his face. There's the same providence is shining in the most holy of places and in the most evil of places. And yet, like it doesn't, Thenardier is still Thenardier. Hmm. I love that. It reminds me of that Bible verse, even down in Sheol, you are there. And like this is the the most, the furthest reaches of the darkest part of Paris that he could imagine. And yet we're going to get a providential hand even here. Yeah. If ambush exists, this is where it was invented is what he says. Born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminded me of that scene where Fontaine is going to her lowest. And at, we've talked about this over and over again, but it was really a poignant moment. The description of someone being a witness to even your, your suffering, if you're all by yourself in the lowest, darkest place in the world, there's still a providential witness to what's going on. I don't know. I thought this scene was all about witnesses as well. It was amazing how many people were hidden and watching what was going mm. on. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And also all of the events of the plot, which maybe we should walk through really quickly. Everything that happens, even though as readers, you're watching Marius and you're like, dude, come on, like make the right choice. It's so obvious. Like just act, you Hamlet. <laughs> but like, <Yes. laughs> the, the fact that he doesn't, like everything that happens that frustrates us as readers actually works out in the end for the best possible outcome, mm-hmm. I think. So that's another evidence of Providence's hand. It was maddening to, to watch, though. I wonder if we should do a quick plot summary because it, it could be kind of confusing. Yeah. So, okay. So from the beginning, then we meet Eponine, who is in the act of carrying out her father's grifts. And what he does now <laughs> is he sits at his table and he writes letters under assumed names to various people of wealth and status, trying to milk them for charity. And then he sends his daughters out to deliver the letters. Doesn't he use his wife's penchant for romantic novels? As mm-hmm. inspiration, he's got yes. the novels in front of him, and it's like cherry picking names and stuff. Yeah. Again, another man who's assuming different names, only like in a completely other way than Jean Valjean. Yeah, and one of the things that that spiders its way through this section is that Thenardier has found anything possible to blame for his misfortune other than himself, and the principal author of his misfortune is rich people. Rich people refuse to spread the wealth. And so anybody that has anything that he doesn't have is a millionaire in his mind. Doesn't Marius say something like when he does have like his cage rage moment and (laughs) yells at Jean Valjean or I'm sorry, Monsieur LeBlanc. Doesn't Marius say something like even in all of the hatred and like the exaggeration, there was something that rung like bitterness of truth. Mm -hmm. So he does. He does have a point. 
in what you're describing. Well, yeah, inequity is a real thing, right? I mean, that's that's the and cruelty. And cruelty is a real thing, but again, I, maybe we don't have the tools to talk about this now. But again, Tenardier's response is indefensible, despite the fact that his poverty is real, that his misery is real, that the suffering that all of that brings on his family is real. He's still somehow responsible, yeah, for all of it. This I don't want this to lead to any kind of real political conversation, but I noticed though, given that we're marking Hugo. And his picture of society that in this darkest place where the Tenardiers really are suffering, there are no tools for work in their room. So they've tried everything, they say, but it doesn't look like it. <laughs> you know, like they're not doing anything except starving and stealing. Well, and he even he even confesses at one point to this. I don't think he intends to. But while he's ranting and raving, he casts his mind back to the time when he was the owner of a business. And he lets slip that what he spent his time doing when he was the owner of that business is drinking away every cent that he made. He f- and he finds other people to blame for the fact that his business failed, but he can't really hide the truth of the matter, which is that while he had a business, he drank away his time. And on the, like, but the other side of the equation is in his rant, he says something like, oh, okay, we'll get my daughters into cardboard making. They need this and that and this and that to set up. And it's going to cost us money. So you, like, in order to make money, I have to have the money. How do you, you have to spend money to make money. Yeah. So, yep. Money produces money. Except that then we see him get money in that day and not spend it on those things, but instead yeah. spend it on himself. And notes like, there was no food in this apartment, but there was tobacco. And then when he when he spends the five sous or whatever it is that he gets or the five francs, he spends it all on the tools of a thief's trade. So I, th- there's definitely a, a quasi political conversation going on about what is citizenship and and is there a connection between prosperity or maybe even just security and work ethic? I think there is. There certainly is. I mean, we have Valjean, whose whose position was opposite to Tenardier's. Tenardier came out of the war and had a good reputation and was a veteran and founded an inn. Even if he didn't even if he it. didn't deserve <laughs> it, he got all of those things and he was a citizen. Right. And he says that at, at multiple times throughout the course of this rant. I am a citizen. Valjean was not. And yet what Valjean manages to do is fill up an entire region with a newly activated trade that gives thousands of people jobs. So yeah. there, um, even if we don't want to spend a ton of time on a political conversation, there is one. It's present in the novel for sure. Well, it is interesting as we, as much as this book is a, a sociological study or a sociopolitical study, I, I, he does want to alleviate the suffering of the poor. Mm-hmm. And he's searching for, for the solution to that, but it does seem like he's balanced enough to look at it from both angles, right? Right. It involves the wealthy sharing their wealth and it involves yeah, the bishop right yeah the way the bishop handles his his wealth there yeah he you're right emily he's very even-handed and unflinching right he's willing to look at at the paris that he loves and say it is a cesspool and and look at this lowest rung of society even as we look at the highest anyway back to plot though so we encounter eponine in the middle of one of those grifts and one of them pans out and it just so happens that it pans out because of Monsieur LeBlanc, who we know is Jean Valjean's generous nature. And he and Cosette show up 
at the apartment of the Tenardiers. I guess we really do know that at this point because the Tenardiers say that Lark, it's the girl, and then right. we find out it's the Tenardiers, and then right. like it's all coming bing, together. Boom! It's, it's all coming together. Bing, <laughs> Interestingly, maddeningly. Ursula still. She's Ursula still to Marius. <laughs> no, she isn't. She fa- He finds out in this section that the UF... He doesn't, he doesn't UF, find out her name. No, it's not that he finds out her name. It's that he finds out that UF is the Urban assumed... Fondra. Yeah, the assumed name of the father. <laughs> and he goes, so not my Ursula. But then he still doesn't know her name. <laughs> oh, I missed but, that. But we didn't get all the way to the point of he the handkerchief I've handkerchief? been sniffing yeah. is... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So it's, it's, a, it's a double whammy because they show up and boom... Marius, who's looking through the partition, sees his lady love and Tenardier recognizes Valjean. And so they they set up a means to rob him, to ambush him that night when he's going to come back with more money. And they get the what's the name of the robber crew? Uh, the one that we read about. in our last Yeah, the reading. one we read about in our last yeah. reading. What was with the thief that was known as like the three different names that he kept repeating over and over again, like. Pashod, who is also like Baglatel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if, and we could find this that out probably, like but <laughs> I wonder if Hugo is is weaving in legendary criminals that were actually alive at the time to lend his narrative some some heft. I don't know. It's always so interesting. I've been listening, like I've been, I'm behind, but I've been doing some like listening to lectures about the stuff and like there is actually a lot that he's just straight up making up like petite picpus you know how remember how he went into so much detail about that mm-hmm. fake not, not a real, real place not real that whole <laughs> description of paris's streets where he was like i don't remember because i'm an exile fake <laughs> wow interesting <laughs> wow hugo goodness gracious okay so the other detail that's woven into this plot is that marius in his good-hearted desire to save his lady love and her father, whom he now regards with all kinds of respect instead of with terror, because he has seen him respond nobly to this situation. Marius goes and gets the police, and it just so happens, bum ba da ba, that the policeman he gets a hold of is Javert. Oh, so for the no. reader, for the reader, it's awful tense because on the one hand, we don't want Tenardier, we want Tenardier to get his, and we don't want him to get the chance to kill Jean Valjean. Right, but. The policeman, who is apparently the only salvation for Valjean in this situation and the only hope of Tenardier getting his, will also immediately lock up Valjean. Who could have Except we this? should have given Hugo more credit because Hugo continues to pretend that he doesn't recognize Jean Valjean as soon as Jean Valjean changes his clothes. And Javert doesn't recognize him either. <laughs> All you have to do to become another person in this book is change your hat. Do you think he doesn't That's recognize true. him? Because no, he does recognize him. I thought so too, because yeah. at the end of the well, anyway, we can get to that part. Well, when he, when when Marius goes goes to the police and goes to Javert, he describes the situation in detail. And and Javert goes, Oh, I know that house. I've been to this place. And that's the place where he was the last time we saw him stalking Valjean. And so he puts two and two together, which is strange. And again, the the weird workings of Providence, because Valjean, we know, has moved and no longer lives there. But it, it is enough. The description of the old man and his white hair and his massive stature is enough in combination with the fact that this is all happening at Gorbeau House for Javert to go, pretty sure I know who that guy is. And so when he walks in the room, he is sure that what he's going to do is wrap up a bunch of the criminals from this legendary band of misfits roaming around the streets of Paris at night. And bag Jean Valjean after years and years and years. So he is stoked with all of the fiery justice fire he's got in him. 
right? He's, he's pretty stoked. He's yeah. he's very brave in this scene. At one point, someone points a gun at Javert's face and he says, go ahead and shoot it. It's going to misfire. So the guy does and it does misfire and it's fine. But like totally just ice water running through his veins. <laughs> well, and again, we're faced with the reality that Javert is right. He's not feeling. He doesn't look around and see human beings. He sees. It's correct. Yeah, he's correct. He sees people as they stand before the law. Yeah. And so he can be utterly assured that he is in the right. So when he says it'll misfire, I think what he's saying is, since I am the hand of God, right, you will not prevail, right. which he is kind of stirring. In kind of a, <laughs> it is it's stirring. That's what I was going to yeah. say too. It's a stirring mm-hmm. way. Or when the Tenardies, this horrible monster of a woman, <laughs> has her tiny sniveling husband behind her, and she's got a giant like block of cement. I don't know where she gets this from, but there's a giant stone in their room somehow. And she's got it hoisted over her head. And she's like, get away from me. Don't come close. And Javert like struts forward towards her and she throws it at him. I mean, this was better than TV, you guys. Yeah. And this giant mm-hmm. stone, which in my mind, it got bigger every time he described it until finally she's picking up a house. Like she throws a house at him right. and it bounces across the wall behind him. And then like skids to a stop at his heels. I thought the whole thing was just. It's great. It's really good writing too. But so this is not even the last confusing moment of tension because meanwhile, Marius has just realized that Thenardier is the man that he has enshrined in his heart alongside his father. And for four years, he's been searching for him and trying to find a way to to honor his father's wishes by prostrating himself before Thenardier in gratitude for saving his father's life and doing whatever it takes to make Thenardier's life well. But here he is faced with the reality that Thenardier is a crook and that Thenardier is getting ready to try and murder the father of his lady love whose name he does not know. So this is obviously really difficult for Marius. It's so interesting because anyone observing that scene who was disinterested, who is perceptive can see that Thenardier is wicked and Jean Valjean is worth protecting. Mm-hmm. And even, even Marius, Marius can recognizes see that. that in the depths of his heart, but he has confused right and wrong with his, with, I don't know, his father's legacy. Yeah. But again, weirdly, Providence intervenes. What? And the way Thank Providence goodness, yeah. intervenes in this particular scene is to use a talent that Eponine has acquired for the sake of bamboozling the law. She has proudly displayed her writing, her writing ability, and what she's written is the cops are here. <laughs> Just like a get out quick. <laughs> and it's still yeah. sitting on his desk. <laughs> and so he reaches over and grabs it, wraps it around a piece of plaster, and throws it into the room. And it becomes a warning for Tenardier because it's in his daughter's hand and stays him the moment before he's about to murder Valjean. Saved by the bell. And then when Javert comes crashing in without any warning, he hasn't received the warning that he asked for from Marius. He wanted Marius to like shoot a pistol into the sky to tell him when to come in with his men. And Marius doesn't do it. But Javert just comes in anyway and nabs all of the prisoners. Well, makes prisoners of all the bandits. And then he turns to get the best one. He says it was to be the best one to capture Mm -hmm. Valjean last. Valjean has jumped out the window and vanished into the night. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a stem winder, ladies and it gentlemen. It is a stem winder. I thought it was interesting that in the midst of this, Jean Valjean is described as being completely 
cool-headed. Obviously, he always is. But it says, however extreme the crisis, however inevitable the catastrophe, there was nothing there resembling the agony of a drowning man staring horrified at the water closing over his head. That seems like pretty significant character development. He was the drowning man. He has been the drowning man. He was the one who jumped off the side of the ship and almost drowned the second time he was taken back to prison. And now something has happened to him that even though he is in the miserable situation, like the, the misery that the book is concerned with, there's something in his soul that doesn't drown anymore. Yeah, here was evidently a soul inaccessible to fear and ignorant of despair. We know that isn't true. We know he's not ignorant of despair, but something has changed. Something has come over him to make him into the person that he is that he is now. And we got to watch that transition happen, but I think for for Valjean because of this continual need to run from Javert to make sure that he is not discovered, the question of whether these changes have fully taken place in his soul has been open for most of the novel, right? I mean, on the one hand, he's developing into a a man of faith who pursues his duty no matter what. And especially ever since he went and delivered that that convict who looked like him and decided, you know what, it's more important to me to do the right thing than it is to stay alive. Um, These changes have actually taken place. And so now Hugo can say and, and be telling us the truth. He is ignorant of despair and inaccessible to fear. Kind of amazing. I won't, I won't lie. I was hoping for a little bit more fisticuffs and not the pistols. I didn't know I that a fisticuff say. was a pistol. I thought fisticuffs was just a boxing match. But um, <laughs> I was hoping for a little bit more of a boxing match because one of my favorite parts of the story is when Valjean is inexplicably strong as a horse and just does crazy stuff. Clobbers <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. At one point, isn't he like holding down two guys with his two knees while beating up a third with his arms? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a little bit of it here, but I re- mostly what I would I wish Providence had done in this situation is have Valjean beat the crap out of everybody and leave. Save himself, right. That wouldn't yeah. be thematically correct, though, so we're glad he didn't. Well, speaking of thematically correct, maybe to wrap up here, we can ask one another, what do you make of the final scene of our section, wherein Gavroche, who is the young son of the Thenardiers, who, as we remember, is a gamin who runs around the streets and doesn't come back to see his parents very often, shows up at the house and tries to beat the door down to, as he puts it, see my ancestors. Come to see my ancestors. (laughs) Come to see my ancestors. (laughs) What do you guys think? Why does Hugo end the section with Gavroche? And instead of telling us what happened to Marius behind the partition, the coward. (laughs) I don't... This is not a deep thematic reading, you guys. I thought it was comic relief. I thought it had been a really intense passage. And then we get this little kid who has the spirit of the the gamin that we described in great detail earlier on. He he has always lived alone. He, he almost doesn't feel the lack of a family because he's always this way. And he's singing dirty songs and he's being cruel to old women. And he is loving life. Is he being uh, cruel to the old woman? I feel like she almost ran him down in the street. (laughs) Oh, yes. But then didn't she, didn't he say, I thought you were an enormous, enormous dog? (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) And then he says, you're not my type. Enormous, enormous dog. Yeah. (laughs) And then he said, maybe I was right. I think you are a dog. (laughs) It is funny. It's also like, Perhaps the most tragic thing going on in this section. Mm -hmm. He hears that his entire family is in their respective jails 
and here he is and he doesn't care. He's completely detached from the entire situation. Except for the fact that he's running around Paris in the winter with no shelter. Right. But detached from them. For good or for ill, like he has nothing to do with what just happened. Hmm. Yeah. I, that really might be the saddest part of the whole story so far. I don't really understand it, but I think it's interesting. So we just finished Marius, the book. And it actually, that's actually a structural bookend it start. this is marius and it started out with a description of gavrash instead of talking about marius mm. and now it's the end oh. of the book and the only unanswered question of the plot that we've come to thus far is what happened to marius in this whole situation and instead of hearing about that here gavrash comes back in mm. so i want what is with this substitution of gavrash for for marius in both cases I don't know. This may be a little pat, but um, it does seem to me that everywhere we look in this story, there is a, f- a foil relationship. So we have Valjean and Javert, and then we have Cosette and the Thenardier girls, and then Eponine. we have Valjean and Thenardier, and then and so on and so on and so on. And so Marius and Gavroche is a nice little pairing, and it seems like all of those straddle the gulf between. Not rich and poor, maybe, but the haves and secure. The have yeah, the haves and the have-nots. Exactly. The the relationship of to the of the son to the absent father, maybe in both mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this was a lot of plot and maybe not a lot of thematic development, and so this has been a shorter conversation. But I do appreciate both of your insights, and it was really fun to read a little plot section. I don't know what we're going to get in the next one. Maybe the sewers. I'm just waiting. That's what I've heard about this novel forever. And I'm just waiting for some sewers. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, I, I would follow Hugo. I mean, even into the sewers, I would still yeah. go there. I, he's, earned, this, he's earned our faith. He did. And he earned our faith even more this time, I think, because this was a real stem winder and a page turner. Yeah. And I'm in. <laughs> well, I appreciate you listeners for joining us again on our trek through Les Miserables. And uh, we'll see you next time on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.